candidate does in order to say, I'm still going to vote. If you care about climate, vote. If you care about fairness, vote. If you care about peace, vote. Uh, this week, Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez marked the five-year anniversary of the introduction of the Green New Deal. We are going to go, and we have to go to every single frontline community and ensure that they are not left behind. We're going to create millions of unionized jobs across the United States of America. We are going to revamp our transmission lines, install solar, commit to geothermal, and we are going to transition this country to clean and renewable energy and create a, a, a sustainable working class in the process of doing it. Mark Hertzgard, we just have 30 seconds. Uh, but again, that's AOC celebrating now five years since Green New Deal was introduced. And that Green New Deal is what gave us the Inflation Reduction Act, somewhat uh, trimmed down from the original vision of the Green New Deal. But that's where, again, elections are important. AOC ran, took on a moderate uh, Democrat who everybody said was unbeatable. She beat him and injected all of this new energy and great ideas into the American political discourse like the Green New Deal. And I think that's exactly why we in the press have to be paying much more attention to the climate issue here in 2024. As the Northeast is shut down what, by what is expected to be a monster storm that just recently started snowing here in the city. The schools are closed from here to Boston. Mark Hertzgard, executive director of Covering Climate Now, will link to your new article in The Nation. I'm Molly, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. Our goal is to create an atmosphere devoid of genre, a place where quality is key. It's important for the world and future generations to understand the power of art and music. Ultimately, we are doing our part to carry on tradition. Tune into Passing Sound, the first Saturday of each month at 10 p.m. on KBU Community Radio 90.7 FM, or KBU.FM, where we make musical structures for the listener to enjoy. Did you know radio is over 100 years old? Actually, radio spans three centuries and two millennia. It emerged in the late 19th century as wireless telegraphy and thrived in the 20th century as the first mass medium. It remains relevant in the 21st century, evolving with digital technology and modern culture. Italian inventor Guglielmo Marconi received the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1909 for his major contributions to its development. Although the process for sending signals over the air via electromagnetic waves was predicted as early as the 1860s and invented in stages by brilliant scientists and engineers from all over the world. This fact has been brought to you by UNESCO and KBU Community Radio for World Radio Day. Consider contributing to independent grassroots radio by going to kboo.fm give or texting KBOO to 44321. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBU Evening News. Coming up on the KBU Evening News, a fifth candidate throws their hat in the ring for Portland mayor. A winter storm warning starts tomorrow for the Cascades and Columbia Gorge. And in national news, research into osteoporosis in horses could result in new understandings in how the disease works in humans. Good evening. This is the KBOO Evening News for Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. I'm Eric Leuschner.
A fifth candidate has entered the Portland mayoral race, business owner and nonprofit leader Keith Wilson. He joins a field with three current city commissioners, Carmen Rubio, Mingus Maps, Renee Gonzalez, and youth coordinator Darrell Kinsey Bay. Wilson is the CEO of Titan Freight Systems, and he helped pioneer a technology that used AI to track driver movements and improve safety. He also founded Shelter Portland, a nonprofit that builds temporary overnight shelters to help get people off the streets. Wilson is an advisory board member of the U.S. High Speed Rail Association. If you recognize his name, he did run against Mingus Maps in 2020, capturing around 5% of the vote. In a recent LinkedIn post, Wilson railed against the city and county after the winter warming shelters were closed while ice and snow were still on the ground and temperatures were near freezing. The Cascade Range and Columbia Gorge have a winter storm warning in effect from Wednesday morning through Thursday night. Heavy snow is expected between 3 and 15 inches, with the heaviest snowfall forecasted east of Multnomah Falls. West of Cascade Locks, the National Weather Service warns there could be wind gusts as high as 50 miles an hour. Travel could be very difficult, with potential whiteout conditions at times and high winds bringing down trees. The Weather Service recommends bringing an extra flashlight, food, and water in your vehicle if you have to travel. As for Portland, the storm will most likely come in the form of rain an inch to an inch and a half. A worst-case scenario would be if temperatures fall below freezing, which could put snowfall at four to six inches. That sounds pretty severe, but the Weather Service estimates the chance of that happening to be around 10%. They recommend that people create an emergency travel kit and monitor the latest forecasts before heading out onto the road. RFK Jr. apologizes for controversial Super Bowl ad. Senator Rand Paul aims to slow foreign aid. House Democrats push for additional WIC funding in the Ag Bill. And former President Trump's NATO remarks draw fire from the GOP and Joint Chiefs. With more on the story, it's Farah Siddiqui with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. Do you want a man for president who's seasoned through and through? A man who's old enough to know and young enough to do. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign paid $7 million for a controversial Super Bowl ad that repurposed a commercial from JFK's 1960 run and swapped their pictures. The anti-vaccine independent apologized when that provoked anger from his family and went on social media to deny approving it. Some Senate conservatives may again try to block an aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Gaza civilians over migration policies. Kentucky Republican Rand Paul is threatening to filibuster in spite of the minority leader. Mitch McConnell is more concerned with sending your money to Ukraine than the invasion of the southern border. And I've had enough. They can vote when hell freezes over. Arizona independent Kirsten Cinema criticized her GOP colleagues for letting former President Donald Trump kill the bipartisan border deal she helped negotiate. Less than 24 hours after we released the bill, my Republican colleagues changed their minds. It turns out 
border security is not actually a risk to our national security. It's just a talking point for the election. Support for the bipartisan standalone foreign aid bill looks strong enough to pass over the objections of conservatives and even as Trump lobbies against aid to Ukraine. Trump continues to draw fire for saying he wouldn't protect NATO allies that don't have large enough defense budgets. If we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. Trump has previously threatened to withdraw from NATO and not coming to an ally's aid would violate U.S. law and treaty obligations. Many, including congressional Republicans, European allies and the chair of the Joint Chiefs, are strongly condemning his statement. Meanwhile, Trump is appealing the decision that he's not immune from federal felony election interference charges for leading January 6th to the Supreme Court. His legal team wants to delay his many potential trials until after the election, and in the complicated dance between the courts and the calendar, how quickly the SCOTUS acts may prove key. Democrats on House Education are pushing a billion-dollar White House request for additional women, infants, and children nutrition funding in the agriculture bill before that legislation's March 1st deadline. They say it's crucial post-pandemic. During that crisis, Virginia Congressman Bobby Scott described how important the program is. Which programs help over 7 million mothers and young children access nutritional counseling, breastfeeding resources, and immunization assessments and screenings. Challenges threaten to disrupt daily nutrition assistance for so many Americans. I'm Farah Siddiqui for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. It's special election day in Washington. Ballots must be postmarked by today or dropped off at an approved ballot site by 8 o'clock tonight. Preliminary results are expected by 8.30 p.m. tonight. In Clark County, voters will be deciding on capital levies for the school district they live in. That means extending or creating a new tax to help support local public schools. In the Battleground School District, Prop 7 would allow for a three-year levy to make safety, facility, and technological improvements in the district. In Camas School District, Prop 6 and 7 would both replace existing tax levies to support educational programming and improvements at the school district. In Woodland School District, Prop 1 would also renew an expiring levy to help support the district and would go towards things like teachers, staff, school supplies, facility maintenance, and athletics. Ballots must be postmarked or dropped off by 8 p.m. tonight. Researchers at Colorado State University are studying how immune cells behave as osteoarthritis progresses in horses. Their findings may also help people who develop the disease after injury. The degenerative joint disease is one of the most common disorders that equine veterinarians encounter, impacting up to 80% of horses older than 15. Eric Galatis has more on the story. Researchers at Colorado State University are making headway in identifying how osteoarthritis progresses in horses, and their findings could one day also help people who develop the degenerative disease after injuring a knee, elbow, or shoulder. Lead researcher and assistant professor Lynn Pezenite says the disease affects nearly 8 in 10 horses over the age of 15. It's the most common disorder affecting joints in horses as well as in people, and one of the most common disorders that we treat overall in horses. It's one of the most 
common reasons horses present to a veterinarian. Pezzanite and her team are hoping to find markers of how osteoarthritis develops in horses by studying individual immune cells in joint fluid. Those markers may provide insights on how veterinarians can use gene therapies or other treatments at specific stages to slow the disease's progression. Typically, people and animals only show signs of osteoarthritis at advanced stages when they're experiencing joint pain. Pezzanite believes information in immune cells might expose the disease much earlier, even before evidence appears on x-rays. Our goal with this work is to look at those very early stages in horses that have post-traumatic arthritis so that we can determine that tipping point of when we should be intervening or not. And hopefully this will inform treatment in humans as well. Pezzanite says people could benefit from this research if the immune markers can be translated across species. Physicians would have better information about when to intervene before full-blown osteoarthritis develops. If you're playing soccer and twist your knee, tear your ACL, we would potentially be able to take a sample of that joint fluid and know whether you're going to develop arthritis or not, which would allow us to be more aggressive in treatment of that joint. This is Eric Galatis for the Colorado News Connection. Shoplifting is an issue Californians debated recently at a hearing in West Hollywood. As Suzanne Potter reports, it brought out a range of views on how best to approach the problem. California lawmakers are considering a range of options to combat a rise over the last two years of felony retail theft, large-scale shoplifting, and held the latest in a series of hearings in West Hollywood on Friday. The State Assembly Select Committee on Retail Theft heard from residents, business owners, and social justice groups. Tanish Hollins with the nonprofit Californians for Safety and Justice says everyone agreed on one thing. The retailers and folks who patronize stores deserve safety. People should be able to do business. That's not up for debate. But relying on incarceration, jail and prison and arrest are not going to get us out of this problem because it's far more complex. Some in law enforcement have suggested in recent years that Prop 47, passed a decade ago, has contributed to the uptick. Prop 47 raised the threshold for felony theft to $950. So if the amount stolen is more than that, it'd be a felony with jail time. The law addressed overcrowding in the jails and has saved $750 million since 2015 in incarceration costs and diverted it to programs that address drivers of crime, including poverty, addiction, and mental illness. Hollins says fear-mongering should not be allowed to undermine criminal justice reform and notes that just 8% of people who participated in Prop 47-funded programs end up back behind bars. But there are many who are really capitalizing off of the fact that people are scared, the businesses are being impacted, and that there's this perception that there's lawlessness. But the truth is, there are ways for us to intervene in this crisis, and we should be using them. Governor Gavin Newsom has proposed cracking down on resellers of stolen goods and clarifying that law enforcement can combine the value of multiple thefts to reach the threshold for felony grand theft. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. You are listening to the KBOO Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for an in-depth interview with Don't Shoot Portland's Teresa Rayford about the organization's free community art build coming up Sunday, February 18th. At 6 o'clock, it's Keeping Democracy Alive. Then at 7, KBOO's Black History and Futures series, 
Charles Chambray interviews Lionel Irving from Love is Stronger, an organization devoted to helping kids and families break the cycle of violence. Tonight's weather will be clear with a low of 36 degrees. Tomorrow's weather will be rainy with a high of 44. Today in history, in 2011, for the first time in more than 100 years, the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Reservation are able to hunt and harvest a bison just outside of Yellowstone National Park, restoring a centuries-old tradition guaranteed by a treaty signed in 1855. The quote of the day is from English children's author Eleanor Fargion, who said, quote, All the ill that is in us comes from fear, and all the good from love. The FBI has plans for a new project to gather more data on missing and murdered indigenous people in the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. With that story and more, it's Jill Freitas with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas sitting in for Antonia Gonzalez. The FBI just launched a new project to collect more data about the missing and murdered indigenous peoples crisis in the state. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman reports on the announcement at the Wind River Reservation made last week. The FBI is the primary law enforcement agency that investigates serious crimes on the Wind River Reservation, and they're trying to collect more information about those who've gone missing or have been murdered. The agency set up a new designated email account, W-Y-M-M-I-P at FBI.gov to better understand what the crisis looks like in the state and what resources the agency can contribute to solving cases. FBI agent Leonard Carollo says he recognizes that tribal members have not always been comfortable working with the agency. We recognize these historical barriers and want to do all we can to improve the flow of information. The agency will collect information, like new details or cases that were never reported, for the next 90 days. Then we'll research and investigate the tips. The FBI also plans to host in-person information-gathering sessions on the reservation. I'm Hannah Haberman. The Anchorage murder trial of Brian Smith enters its second week. The 52-year-old man is accused of killing two Alaska Native women, both from two rural communities who had experienced homelessness in Anchorage. Last week, during jury selection, jurors were asked if they could handle seeing gruesome photos and video that Smith allegedly shot of one of the killings on his cell phone. Last week, a woman testified that she stole the phone from Smith's truck. At the time, she said she lived in a tent and was riding around town with Smith on a date. In 2019, the woman turned in an SD card to police and told them she found it on the ground. But in court last week, she admitted to stealing Smith's phone from his truck and copying the video to an SD card, which she turned over to police after her therapist encouraged her to do so. As the trial finished its first week, defense attorneys argued the footage shouldn't be shown to the jury because so many different stories had been told about the source of the video. Before trial recessed last week, the judge asked the prosecution to explain more about how police obtained the video and how it was handled. As of now, the judge plans to allow the jury to see the footage in which Smith does not appear but is heard telling his victim that he plans to kill her. Investigators say they recognized his South African accent from a prior investigation involving Smith, which led to his arrest. The federal government is launching a new behavioral health call line for students and staff at tribal schools. The Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Bradle has more. 
The line is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week for students and staff at schools funded by the Bureau of Indian Education. The agency says the line will mostly be staffed by indigenous counselors who have experience serving native communities. They will offer both immediate individual crisis support and scheduling for virtual counseling. Emily Harrows is with the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. She says this added support comes at a critical time. Across the board, we see inequities in mental health-related outcomes among Indigenous groups, particularly Indigenous youth. And so having something really tailored to those communities is really important in order to make sure that the care that's provided is culturally congruent and also accessible. The Behavioral Health Line will serve more than 180 tribal schools. For National Native News, I'm Caleb Radel. And I'm Jill Freitas. New Jersey's medical aid in dying law will be allowed to stand after the state's Supreme Court last week rejected a lawsuit aimed to overturn it. In addition to New Jersey, medical aid in dying laws have been legalized by nine other states, including Oregon. Roz Brown has the details. After a five-year court battle, New Jersey's aid in dying law has been affirmed by the state's Supreme Court, which rejected an attempt to overturn the statute. Signed by the governor in 2019, the law was soon challenged by a physician based on religious, personal, and constitutional grounds. It allows mentally capable, terminally ill adults with six months or less to live to get a prescription they can use to end their lives. Dr. Paul Bryman is an advocate for medical aid in dying for people who feel their suffering is intolerable. I think that it's important that that option is available for people who choose to avail themselves of it. It's not for everyone, and it's someone's choice whether they want to use that. No one's forced to do it. Bryman is a hospice palliative specialist who practices geriatric and internal medicine. He believes there are adequate legal safeguards to make sure patients are protected. The law was briefly suspended in August 2019, but reinstated 13 days later as court proceedings continued. The nonprofit group Compassion and Choices expressed support for the decision, as well as expanded and improved end-of-life care options. Its attorney, Alan Howard, urged the justices to uphold a lower court's ruling. We're grateful that the Supreme Court recognized that there are terminally ill New Jersey residents who are counting on this end-of-life care option to bring them peace of mind during this difficult time. Dying people should have this compassionate option to peacefully end their suffering if it becomes unbearable. Bryman says a total of 186 terminally ill New Jerseyans have used the medical aid in dying law and believes the court made the right decision. I'm glad that it's finally over and that this law is available for for people in New Jersey who have the right to their own health care decisions. In addition to New Jersey, Washington, D.C. and nine other states which represent 22% of all Americans, have authorized medical aid in dying. For New Jersey News Connection, I'm Roz Brown. Danish photos from the 1930s show what Greenland's glaciers used to look like. Scientists are using the images to document the impacts of global warming. Dr. Anthony Lysowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lysowitz, and this is Climate Connections. In the 1930s, Danish pilots wearing suits made of polar bear fur flew open cockpit planes along the coastline of Greenland. From the air, they took roughly 200,000 photographs. The images were intended to be used for mapping, 
But now, scientists are using them to see how global warming has affected Greenland's peripheral glaciers, which dot the land around the central ice sheet. And these glaciers are really important to study because they contribute significantly to sea level rise. Laura LaRocca worked on the project while at Northwestern University and as a NOAA Climate and Global Change postdoctoral fellow. Using the Danish images, military photos, and satellite data, the researchers found that Greenland's glaciers retreated throughout the 130-year study period, but their melting sped up over the past two decades. Glaciers are now retreating at a rate roughly twice the rate observed over the 20th century. She says the study highlights the urgent need to limit global warming. It's just a stunning landscape, and it's really sad to see the loss of these glaciers. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. Senate progressives, Jeff Merkley prominent among them, are targeting non-defensive military aid to Israel, arguing that Israel's use of U.S.-made bombs and other weapons violates international and humanitarian law. They've made little headway, even though their proposed legislation is fairly mild. It would only require State Department reporting on how the aid is being used, not condition it on Israel's compliance. Now we go to Global Citizen Commentary on the issue from Portland State Professor Emeritus Mel Gertov. The opinions expressed in the following piece are those of the speaker. Hello everyone. In my last commentary, I discussed negotiations in the Middle East and strategic thinking in Washington about ending the war in Israel. Another venue is in the U.S. Congress. For those who are dismayed and disturbed by Israel's disproportionate response to the Hamas atrocities on October 7 last year, Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley and other progressive Senate Democrats are fighting their battle. They have been pushing for Senate action that would tie further U.S. military aid to Israel on Israel's adherence to international and U.S. humanitarian law. Israel's abuses of the law have been commonplace in recent months. U.S. 2,000-pound bombs and other weapons have pulverized cities, hospitals, and villages in Gaza bringing the civilian death toll of Palestinians to over 27,000, two-thirds of whom are said to be women and children. Two specific actions in the Senate are relevant here, both supported by Merkley. One is a resolution put forward by Senator Bernie Sanders that would have required the State Department to report within 30 days on any Israel violations of human rights. The resolution received only 11 votes, indicating that even most Democrats would not go along with monitoring Israel's behavior. The other is an amendment to a supplemental military assistance bill authored by Chris Van Hollen of Maryland that would require the President and the State Department to investigate and report to Congress on any country's abuse of non-defensive U.S. military aid, such as those bombs sent to Israel, in violation of international and U.S. humanitarian law. The amendment has yet to be voted on. Interviewed by The New Yorker magazine, Senator Merkley, who has visited Gaza during the fighting, said of his motivation for supporting these kinds of inquiries, quote, I have been deeply disturbed by the enormous number of deaths, the enormous number of injuries, the hugely inadequate supply of humanitarian aid, and the massive dislocation of the Gaza and Palestinian population. Yet very few Democratic senators, let alone Republicans, seem eager to support either bill, even though both are rather mild. The senator's bill is exclusively focused on Israel, which is problematic for some Democrats. 
Yet all the bill does is require reporting. The Van Hollen Amendment applies to all countries, not just Israel, but it too gives to the administration rather than to Congress the initiative on reporting on Israel's actions with U.S. weapons. Neither bill actually conditions present or future U.S. military aid on Israel's compliance with humanitarian law and human rights by making clear the link between violations and aid. Still, Van Hollen is very unlikely to survive a Senate vote. Merkley understands that underlying the resistance to taking strong action to limit Israel's wartime behavior is the long-standing taboo against it. So is the counterpart to criticizing Israel, rejecting an independent Palestinian state. As Merkley says, quote, it is time to pivot to recognize that we need to work with Israel and the international community in a much more forceful way toward the vision of two states for two peoples. So some of my colleagues are still coming from the vision of never suggest that anything is wrong and never suggest a criticism. But for many of us, that plan has failed and it's time for a more assertive, determined collaboration between the United States, Israel, and the Arab League toward producing two states for two peoples. When Senators Merkley and Van Hollen traveled to Israel, they visited the Rafah crossing in the south. Merkley came back with very critical observations about the pitiful flow of aid into Gaza, often held up for days or rejected outright by Israeli inspectors. Before October 7, he said, more than 500 trucks would regularly pass each day into Gaza. Why, given the human calamity, can't there be a lot more trucks passing now? Even just two weeks ago, it, it averaged, I believe, around 150 trucks per day, wholly insufficient, unquote. The process should only take one day, he said. Merkley concludes, certainly my impression is that Israel, knowing that they were able to inspect and deliver 500 trucks into Gaza before October 7, could certainly inspect and deliver 500 trucks by tomorrow, if they were determined to do so. Merkley and Van Hollen recognize that Israel is weaponizing Gaza aid. They wrote to the president on February 1 with seven specific ways to improve and increase the flow of humanitarian assistance, including use of the U.S. military. What they might further do is condition non-defensive military aid on Israel's facilitation of humanitarian aid. The greater Israel's cooperation, the more military aid the U.S. will release. The senator's observations have even more relevance now, since Israel has indicated that Rafah, where roughly half the Gaza population has been pushed, is the next center of the Israeli offensive. We can expect that many Gazans will be unable to flee yet again, ensuring that the already unconscionable death toll will be higher still. I'm Mel Gertal for The Global Citizen. Thanks very much for listening. You're listening to the KBU Evening News for Tuesday, February 13, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news stories and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Lisa Loving and Mel Gertov. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is Otto. Special thanks to Eric Galatas, Faraz Siddiqui, Jill Freitas, Suzanne Potter, and Roz Brown. The director of Evening News is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash eveningnews. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Eric Leuschner. 
All of our KBOO programs, including the evening news, are supported by our members. If you'd like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to the number 44321. Stay tuned now for KBOO News in Depth. KBOO News in Depth, where we take a deeper look at the top news stories impacting our community. You are listening to KBOO News in Depth. Coming up on Sunday, February 18th, Don't Shoot Portland and Media Pollution are hosting a community art build at Pacific Northwest College of Art from 11 to 3 p.m. It's described as an opportunity to create powerful art that raises awareness and sparks conversation about important social issues. The art produced will be incorporated into Don't Shoot Portland's installation in the Policing Justice Exhibition at the Portland Institute for Contemporary 